Unless you've been living in a cave with no internet connection for about a year or so, you have most certainly noticed that news and stories about Taylor Swift are everywhere on CNBC, CNN, Fox News, MSNBC, PBS, The Wall Street Journal, The New York Times, The Economist, in university scholarly journals, and certainly music industry publications. She's in the tabloids, and she's in our movie theaters. To put it simply, the Eras Tour, Miss Swift's concert tour, has become a phenomenon. Well, let me explain. Um, if you'd have talked to me about this very topic 15 years ago, I probably would have told you that uh, Taylor Swift couldn't exist. Oh, have we had a similar phenomena like Taylor Swift in our history? Yes, I absolutely do not think that Taylor Swift is unprecedented. So yeah, they the average American was going to uh, either uh, the major concert halls or like we said, touring companies and listening to Italian opera. Um, it, it was literally part of their common diet. That is so different than now. Yeah, I mean, by the same token, they were going to see Shakespeare, which loudspeakers develop quite a bit later uh, in terms of the original time that they emerged. It's really like the 19 teens, like 1915 or thereabouts is the first time that you have loudspeakers that are even remotely commercially available. And the first known effort to amplify a public event, I believe, is in 1915 or thereabouts in San Francisco. In the 1890s, a songwriter would make a great deal of their money from um, selling copies of the sheet music. It was a primary source of income. Um, but by the time you hit oh, 30s, wow. 40s, people are buying less sheet music. They're buying, they start buying recordings. And so you see this, uh, this shift, if you will, in income. Her manager, I mean, part of this was because the person managing her was P.T. Barnum, right? The great American oh. showman. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. and he, why was he the great American showman? Because he was a master at publicity before most people even knew what publicity was. She he turned her into a celebrity, uh, and it you know you could say, and it's maybe only a little bit of a stretch, like the first version of what we would consider to be a modern pop star. Did you know that long before the Taylor Swift phenomena in the 19th century, we had the Jenny Lynn phenomena? She was referred to as the Swedish Nightingale and her performances were highly sought after in Europe. In 1850, she embarked on an extremely popular concert tour of America. Her concerts were talk of the town and even far beyond. She became a superstar in our country, a mega-celebrity not too different from those in our own time, except that, one, she donated the money she made from these concerts to charity, mainly for free children's school back in Sweden. And two, this pop culture celebrity didn't sing or perform pop music. She sang opera. Hey there, news peelers. Today is Wednesday, November 15th, 2023. And this is Adele, your host at the History Behind News podcast. Aren't you tired of the repetitive news on TV and social media? They just go over the same dramatized developments all day long. 
Do you ever wonder what happened before our news? I mean, how did we get here? They say if you don't know your history, you're bound to repeat it. So while others cover the news, I uncover its history. I call this peeling the history behind news, which we accomplish in weekly conversations with distinguished scholars who delve deep into history to give us their fascinating perspectives from our past. I'm committed to making in-depth history that are researched and written by scholars enjoyable and accessible to everyone. So grab a cup of coffee or your favorite drink or both and let's get into it. This weekend in Buenos Aires, Argentina, in full view of everyone, Miss Taylor Swift kissed and embraced Travis Kelsey, the Kansas City Chiefs tight end, who's won a couple of Super Bowls and made their relationship public. The prelude to this kiss was Miss Swift's changing the lyrics to her song Karma during the concert, which Mr. Kelsey watched from the sidelines and was visibly surprised. This is the new line in the lyrics in her head song Karma. Karma is the guy on the Chiefs coming straight home to me. Admittedly, Miss Swift sings this a lot better than I do. Regardless, she sang this line allegedly with a laugh. The reason I share this story is this. According to CNN, after the Kelsey reference, Miss Swift's song Karma jumped from 189th on the iTunes song chart to number 15 in just 24 hours. That's a 184-point improvement in one day. Her song Antihero has been nominated for Song of the Year, which makes her the first songwriter with seven Grammy nominations in the category, surpassing Sir Paul McCartney and Lionel Richie, who have six nominations each. And there's Miss Swift's concert movie, which my daughter and all her friends went to. I asked my daughter if she got a good seat in the theater. She looked at me as if I was completely clueless, which in this case, I was. She told me that no one was sitting. They danced in front of the big screen the whole time. The weekend after my daughter went to the Taylor Swift concert movie, I watched a report on CNBC about how Taylor Swift's Eras Tour moviegoers are ignoring theater etiquette by dancing in movie theater aisles and on chairs. For a split second, I expected a video clip of my daughter and her friends to show up on the CNBC report. It didn't. Anyway, as far as news reports go, did you know that Ms. Swift now has her own dedicated reporter, like the White House has its own dedicated reporters? This reporter represents Gannett, the largest newspaper chain in the United States. And we shouldn't be too surprised at this. Ms. Swift's albums have enjoyed the best-selling spot in the U.S. in 2009, 2014, 2017, 2019, 2020, and 2022. Recently, the Harvard Gazette, the official news website for Harvard University, wrote an article about her with the following title, quote, So what exactly makes Taylor Swift so great? End quote. Is it her verbal hooks? Her songwriting talent? Whatever it is, Miss Swift is a worldwide phenomenon on the scale of Michael Jackson in the 1980s or the Beatles before him. A whopping 53% of American adults claim to be Swift fans, and 16% are Swifties. In case you're not familiar with that term, let me say it again, Swifties. It's a term that my daughter and her friends use often. All of this made me curious. How did concerts happen before electrification and amplification of concert venues? And how big were these concerts? 
before music was recorded. Before record sales, how did music performers make money outside the concert hall? And how was it that in the old days, in the 19th century, for example, young people listened to operas and symphonies as if they were popular music? And opera singers like Jenny Lind that I mentioned in the opening were popular phenomena. And what does popular music mean anyway? We keep on using that term. To get answers to these questions and much more, I spoke with Dr. James Davis and Dr. Steve Waxman. Dr. Davis is a professor of musicology and chair of the music history area at the School of Music in the State University of New York at Fredonia. His teaching interests include American music, 18th to 19th century concert music, and the history of popular music. He is the founding editor for the Teaching of Music History series. He has published widely on this subjects, and his latest book is Marilyn, My Maryland, Music and Patriotism During the American Civil War. Dr. Waxman is the L.C. Erwin Sweeney Professor of Music and Professor of American Studies and Chair in American Studies at Smith College. His research and teaching interests range widely across the subjects of U.S. popular music and popular culture, with particular specialty in the study of live music, music genres, music technology, and music instruments, particularly the guitar. Dr. Waxman has published widely on these subjects, including The Say in the Summer of Love, Conflict and Crossover in Heavy Metal and Punk, which was awarded the 2010 Woody Guthrie Award for Best Scholarly Book on Popular Music by the U.S. Chapter of the International Association for the Study of Popular Music. His latest book is Live Music in America, A History from Jenny Lind to Beyonce. To learn more about Dr. Davis and Dr. Waxman, you can visit their academic homepages, the links for which are provided in the detailed caption of this episode. So, stay with me as Dr. Davis and Dr. Waxman and I peel the history behind this news. We hope you are enjoying this podcast. And if you are, then why not treat us to a cup of coffee? That's right. For the price of a cup of coffee, you too can become a monthly supporter of the History Behind News podcast. We rely on your support to continue this program, to continue peeling the history behind our news. Supporting us is easy. Just click the support link in the detailed caption of this episode. And while you're there, check out the information about our guests and other attributions and links. And thank you. Dr. Davis, Dr. Waxman, it's a pleasure to have you in our program. Thank you for taking the time for this conversation with me. <laughs> I'm just going to jump into this history because I'm just so intrigued. Uh, what were music concerts like back in the 19th century? We're talking before mics, before amplification, before recording. I think generally speaking, audiences today would recognize a concert uh, in the 19th century. Um, they would recognize it. Yeah. Many of the concerts that would have happened in this country in the 19th century, you know, would have looked and in many ways sounded similar as they do today. Um, mm. um, but I remember I'm saying that thinking of uh, classical music concerts and opera as much as I am popular music. Um, there are, of course, notable differences. Um, as you say, 
the advent of amplification broadcasting and things like that are game changers in so many ways. Yeah. Um, but if you were to attend a symphony concert in, in 1850, I think you would feel very comfortable uh, as if you were going to a concert today. Yeah. What I would add is that, um, you know, if you, if you, there's, there's sort of two layers of this sort of social dimension and the aesthetic dimension and on the social dimension, even before the 19th century, like some really important things that had to change were that up until like the early 18th century and into the later part of the 18th century, depending on where you're looking at, um, concerts, did you say 18th or 19th? I'm, I'm going back farther. I'm talking 18th. 18th. Okay, yeah. good. I'm following. Go ahead, please. Because, because, uh, I think it's important to have some of this backstory. Concerts as we know them started to emerge more in the 18th century. And the big change was that pre, pre previous to that point, a concert wasn't really open to the public at large. It was more open to a very reserved number of folks, often like royalty, nobles, things of that sort. So the big change was that concerts became more broadly public events. And that really starts to happen like some somewhere around the 1720s, 1730s in England. And then it kind of rolls out in different parts of Europe and even in the American colonies, the British colonies uh, in North America prior to the Revolutionary War. Um, and part of what's involved in that is that they become more squarely commercial you know, like when when a noble person is hosting a concert, they're not necessarily looking to charge a bunch of money for it. Yeah, yeah. When when people start offering concerts for private citizens, they start charging admission fees or sometimes subscription fees, and that is a very big part of what makes the concert a more modern kind of phenomenon. I'm surprised um, that you're saying that this uh, opening up of concerts to the public. Uh, dates back only to the 17th century because if you go back to uh, the 16th century, early 16th century, Shakespeare was having his plays open to people and charging for it, right? But those are not considered, I guess, concerts. Well, that's that's theater, not music, yeah, yeah. right? What, and it's yeah. not like there wasn't music that was open to a broader public. It would have been. It wouldn't have been presented in the form that we think of as concerts, right? You could have gone to a pub uh, at <laughs> yeah. a certain point, and you would have maybe found some musicians performing, you know. And so that's a little bit more like what we would think of as going to a club now. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But it was a very different sense of who the public was in that regard, um, and the music wasn't necessarily the main attraction, right? A concert implies that you're going to hear the music. Uh, so that, that's part of what we're talking about, too. Uh, I appreciate that sort of the pub setting is much smaller than a concert setting in the 19th century or even 18th century. But going back to our conversation about concerts, then these venues must have been smaller, right? Not always. If we look at opera houses, let's say, you know, Dr. Davis mentioned... Uh, classical music and opera houses if you look at them for example in new york uh I've, I've been i've been to them in london as well they're smaller structures than let's say i don't know staples stadium in they are smaller but i think one thing that would surprise a lot of modern observers is how big some of them were uh you know they were built with acoustics in mind of course and it's very possible to get 
natural acoustics amplifying sound up to a certain point. Uh, you know, the expectations of how loud something would be were, of course, very different in the 19th century than they are today. So you wouldn't necessarily have had the expectation that you heard something with the kind of overarching clarity that you hear at a concert today. Um, but I mean, to to bring up some of the examples that I think uh, both Dr. Davis and I are familiar with, like Jenny Lind and um, Patrick Gilmore were two figures in the 19th century who in their different ways performed in front of crowds that were far larger than I think one would expect given the nature of the available venues and the available technology. So Jenny Lind, when she toured the U.S. in 1850 and onward, was performing to audiences of between six and 8,000 people often. With wow. No application. And they fit within a structure, within a building? Oh, yeah. The buildings were there. The issue was, how did you get them to hear? And, and there's a lot, if, if you read through the available commentary on her tour, there's a lot of debate over that very issue. Like, how well could Jenny Lynn be heard? And and one of the things that critics comment on routinely is that you could hear her so clearly, and that was a mark of how great of an artist she was. Wow. And are, are some of the structures in which you perform in America still, still standing? Some, but a lot of them have been torn down. So her, the place where she debuted uh, in New York City, Castle Garden, doesn't exist anymore. Uh, it, it got repurposed into being an immigration center for a long time. It was sort of a precursor to Ellis Island. Oh, wow. Um, um, and, and then they eventually tore it down. Can I deduce from what you're saying regarding architecture of concert venues back in the 19th century or perhaps even 18th century um, that we now construct them differently because we're not as worried about natural acoustics as we were back then because now we have amplification. Is the structure of concert hall now entirely different? I wouldn't say they're entirely different. Um, I, I think modern builders take into account reinforcement, but uh, and the science of acoustics obviously has grown immensely. Um, but I think the principles at heart remain the same. If I had to pick a big distinction between then and now, it's the uh, spaces today are purpose built more than they were. Um, oh, you know, the Sydney Opera House was built to suit opera and Carnegie Hall in its original conception was meant as a space for large art music ensembles. Um, a lot of the spaces that uh, we're talking about that, for example, Jenny Lynn performed at were more multi-purpose spaces. I see. I see. Um, you know, we've, we've, we've talked about, we've mentioned Jenny Lynn several times um, <laughs> and her tour in America. And here's a silly question, perhaps not so silly. If you are, let's say, a middle-class person, let's say it's 1852 and you're living in Tennessee. Would you be attending this concert? Would you even know about this concert? Would it be written in the newspapers? How, like, this is not social media. This is not even TV or radio. How would you know? How, well, I have a follow-up question, but please go ahead. 
I mean, I was gonna, I'm going to jump in because Professor Waxman can talk about this better than I can. He just finished a superb study on this very topic. Um, but I laughed because there are two different questions there in a sense. Did this person in rural Tennessee go to the concert or did they hear about it? <laughs> You're and right. That is we talked about with Jenny Lynn so much is that, oh, they heard about it. Everybody heard about this. And that's one of the things that makes her sh- such a touchstone in the history of music in America. Um, did they go to the concert? Uh, I mean, I, I don't remember, Steve, you do, but 90 concerts covered a lot of this country, but it didn't cover everywhere. Wow, so, 90 concerts, that's a lot. Wow. She actually did, did more than 90. She did, I think she did over 100 when all was said and done. Um, what time span? Did this take a couple of years? Yeah, <laughs> 1850 to 1852. Okay. Uh, and yeah, like the the news about Jenny Lind traveled far and wide. I mean, if you look at newspapers when she debuts in 18 in the fall of 1850. I mean, you can look at front page newspapers in any major city of the U.S. She was on the front page. Her debut in New York was circulated everywhere. Her manager, I mean, part of this was because the person managing her was P.T. Barnum, right? The great American oh. showman. Yeah. yeah, yeah and yeah. and he, why was he the great American showman? Because he was a master at publicity before most people even knew what publicity was. She He turned her into a celebrity. Uh, and it, you know, you could say, and it's maybe only a little bit of a stretch, like the first version of what we would consider to be a modern pop star. Um, so the news traveled far and wide. She also traveled far and wide. I mean, she was coming here from having performed for a while in England. She was originally from Sweden. She'd been performing around Europe for quite a few years before she came to the U.S. She was by no means the first European concert star to make her way to the U.S. That had been a trend that had already been going on for decades at that point. Um, oh, but but her own tour reached parts of the country that most other artists would not have reached. Um, and, uh, but, but so, you know, New Orleans, for instance, had a huge uh, concert economy in the 19th century, in some ways the equivalent of what you would have found in a New York or a Boston. Wow. Um, Tennessee yeah, would... not a total backwater, you know. Uh but rural Tennessee, you would have I can't remember if she performed in Tennessee. I just picked Tennessee. No. Yeah. <laughs> <Me too. laughs> it's but it's not totally far-fetched. I mean, Nashville and Memphis were both cities that would have had at least the stirrings of some of the cultural exactly. institutions that yeah, yeah. could have presented her at that time. Yeah, yeah. Um you know, I think it helps to know also that Americans by that point uh, were used to traveling companies uh, in music and in the arts in general, that there, there, there was a real healthy touring, uh, touring companies in opera, in, in uh, ensembles, in solo artists. So Americans were quite used to seeing visiting artists come through their region. And that was part of their, their uh, artistic uh, life. Um, help me better understand this phenomena of Jenny Lind at that time, you know, I use the word phenomena because I'm borrowing from the Taylor Swift phenomenon now, and she's a pop star. And we get that. Uh, I have attended operas, but when I speak to my daughter and her friends about operas, they sort of chuckle. And even for grownups, that's sort of a, I don't want to say elitist, That's but that's more refined. Um, 
And I'm guessing that in opera, was she singing English or was she singing, uh, she was Swedish, so was she singing Italian, German operas? She, she sang some stuff in English. She sang in Italian. She sang in German. Uh, so, but did ordinary people seek to see her? Yes, absolutely. It was not as an elitist of a phenomenon in the mid-19th century as it has become. That as one of the things that really changes over the course of the 19th century is that there's more of a strict line between high and low culture, between classical and popular culture by the end of the 19th century that there was in an earlier time. And Lynn's tour was coming at a time in the middle of the century when it was still not that unusual for ordinary people, certainly ordinary working or middle-class people, but even working class people to go to see culture that had a certain air of refinement about it if it was affordable. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so it had to be something that was within their reach. Um, and if it was something that came to their attention, which she certainly did. That's fascinating. Um, now, yeah, this I, is... Go you ahead, might please. find this interesting, too. In, I've always argued in my work, Americans in the 19th century were extremely democratic in their tastes. Um, I spent a lot of my work on bands, band history. And when I first got into it, I remember being startled by the list of pieces that might be in a band book, for example, for a regimental band during the war. Um, and it takes a while to process for us to process that a Civil War soldier sitting there one evening would listen to his band perform uh, an arrangement of Listen to the Mockingbird, which was then immediately followed by an arrangement of a piece from a Meyer beer opera. <laughs> and the soldiers <laughs> took it all with a smile as, as far as they're concerned, as long as it's good music, they don't care where it came from. Um, so yeah, they, the average American was going to, uh, either uh, the major concert halls or like we said, touring companies and listening to Italian opera. Um, it, it was literally part of their common diet. That is so different than now. Yeah. I mean, by the same token, they were going to see Shakespeare, which, you mentioned before Shakespeare already had had sort of a popular component and and retained that yeah. throughout most of the 19th century until you kind of get to the end when people start to be like Shakespeare is great literature Shakespeare is really just for you know the elite to sort of enjoy and develop their own sort of cultivated sensibilities um that is that is a very distinct sort of modern construction uh, the notion that there's some culture for some people and some culture for other people. Yeah, it's very much the notion now. I mean, you don't see kids yearning to read Shakespeare or go to plays or what have you. There's a Shakespeare festival that occurs in Southern Oregon and Ashland. That's very popular, but kids are not, you know, itching to go there. You have to set it up for them. Interesting. In the minute we have left uh, of this segment, any any comments about Patrick Gilmore? You gentlemen mentioned his name. Well, I, I include Patrick Gilmore under this topic, um, the topic being concerts, but also popular music, the, uh -huh. the popular music in this country. I put Patrick Gilmore in this category specifically because of two concerts he produced, uh, the National Peace Jubilee and then the subsequent World Peace Jubilee. Um, at both of these events, 
he brought together quite literally thousands of performers, uh, orchestral performers, band performers, singers, soloists, all these people into this epic, epic spectacle. And, and that's the word that I think is so important here. They were spectacles. Um, and I think that was one of the missing pieces here as we're putting together how that's how interesting. popular music today. And was this in one location uh, or did he tour? Well, and back to your question about venues, which, by the way, is critical to understanding all this. In both cases, he built a venue to house the concerts. Wow. Um, and since you are enjoying this numbers game, the first one, I believe, held 60,000. And what, the a building back then in the 19th century held 60,000? Yeah, this is like a stadium. And the second one was supposed to hold a hundred thousand, but there was a storm a couple weeks before the concert, and it knocked over the building. So they had to kind of throw together a smaller space. So a couple of questions: one, this sixty thousand uh, person venue was it uh, was it roofed? Was it was it closed? I believe so. And then, yes, it was. where was this? Yeah, like, it's in Massachusetts, wasn't it? It was in Boston. It yeah, was Boston. it was it was in around Boston Common. Right. Right. Around Boston Common. That is wild. And yeah. I know it doesn't exist. And they anymore, basically right? like tore it down shortly after they did the concert. Yeah. This is fascinating. Uh we'll be back after a short break to talk about electrifying and amplifying concerts and of course social media. We'll be right back. <laughs> Sixty thousand. Wow, that's like just as America's music culture has changed over the centuries, so has America's movie culture. In Season 3, Episode 29, Professor Thomas Doherty of Brandeis University talked about the magic of the movies in early 20th century and how all of that changed with the advent of television and how it's changing again now with the disruption of artificial intelligence. I've dropped a link for you to my conversation with Professor Doherty. Now, let's get back to our conversation with Dr. Davis and Dr. Waxman. Dr. Davis, Dr. Waxman, when did loudspeakers and recording enter the picture? They Well, they entered the picture at different times. I mean, recording is basically an invention of the 1870s. Uh, and in terms of it having any real dramatic impact on daily life, you're talking more like first decades of the 20th century. Um, oh, so like 30, 40 years uh, after their invention. Okay. It rolls out slowly. I mean, there are certainly some commercial recordings being produced in the 1890s that have a certain amount of currency, but uh, but the recording industry, as we know it, is really uh, something that starts to blossom more in the 19-teens and 1920s. Um, loudspeakers develop quite a bit later uh, in terms of the original time that they emerge. It's really like the 19-teens, like 1915 or thereabouts is the first time that you have loudspeakers that are even remotely commercially available. And the first known effort to amplify a public event, I believe is in 1915 or thereabouts in San Francisco. Um, and now, when you say public event, you're not talking about political addresses or anything. You're just talking about I am concert. talking about okay. that sort of thing. Yeah. All of it encompasses all of concerts. it. I'm just talking okay. 
in fact, early on, these sorts of systems were used much more commonly for speech than they were for music because they weren't really all that well developed at the time. So using them for music wasn't like a great option. And this was true for recording too. I think it's important to say like early, early phonographs and gramophones, like Edison designed the phonograph more for recording voice and talking than he did for music. Um, he thought it was going to be a way to do like office memos and stuff like that. So, uh, it was only over time that people committed more to the idea that like, this was a remarkable tool to retain and exchange music. So based on what you just explained, it seems like recording and amplification don't really impact music concerts until what 1920s 1930s yeah that's really even in the 20s it's still very preliminary um and and even in the 30s it's still pretty preliminary like you you know like the electric guitar for instance is effectively invented in 1932 uh and it is not the first amplified instrument there are other prototypes that are designed before that time but they're barely used at all so if you if you take that as a milestone right so in the early 1930s amplification starts to become a bit more broadly popular but the level of amplification was like a fraction of what it is today so if you look at like advertisements for PA systems that were being promoted at that time you know a big system would have had like 30 watts Right. That's like less than <laughs> most of us have in our home stereo systems. If we have in our business oh, boy. Um, so <laughs> how loud with this? This is why I was saying earlier, like the whole notion of what loud, how loud is loud enough is one of those things that's changed so dramatically over time. Um, and at that time, for the most part, if a guitarist decided to use uh, a, a, an electric guitar and amplifier on stage, that didn't necessarily mean the whole rest of the group was going to be doing the same sort of thing. You would probably have somebody singing through a microphone at that starts to become more common in the 1930s. It's, it's definitely not most common in the twenties, although there are some artists who are starting to do it. Um, but the level of volume you would have had in the thirties would still have been like a, a pale approximation of what we've got, become more accustomed to in recent yeah. years. When, you know, one of the reasons I asked you about recording, I was thinking of money. Mm. Um, now it's changed so much. I don't even want to get into how like streaming and downloading music. Um, back when I was younger, you would go and buy a CD. Before that, you would go buy tapes. And then when I was very, very young, then records. But uh, musicians made money off of that. In addition to their concerts, they a portion of that went to the musicians. So is there a time after which musicians see recording as an additional means of making money? The twenties is when I would say that really starts to be a significant factor for more than a very, very small handful of musicians. I mean, you would have had say one of the biggest recording stars of the early 20th century was an opera singer, actually getting back to (laughs) earlier conversation Enrico Caruso recorded for Victor. uh, Well, it just would have been Victor at the time, Uh, Victor records. And uh, 
he he was making very successful records in like the, the very first decade or so of the 19th hundreds of the 20th century. Um, but he was a, he was unusual in that regard. Most recordings at that time were really kind of secondary to whatever kind of performance career an artist would have had. Um, in the 20s, the recording industry really grows quite significantly. In part, that's because record companies start to record a much wider range of types of music. The 20s is when you start to get country music being recorded for the first time. It's when you start to have blues being recorded in significant amounts for the first time. It's the first time that jazz makes really any significant impression on record. Uh, these have enormous impact on the overall shape of what Americans listen to. And it, they drive a growing desire for people to actually have recordings in their homes. Uh, radio is another factor in all of this, which yeah. is in some ways just as important, if not more so, to understanding how music becomes more and more integrated into people's daily lives. And a lot of what you get on radio in this period, especially in the 30s, is like live broadcasts. I was going to say, yeah. So, at some point, though, in addition to live broadcast, some of these stars, you can't just pull them into the radio station. You have to play their recordings, right? That doesn't become more of the norm until the 40s. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. The rock I, I era is a big... Oh, go ahead. Sorry, uh, just that it's so easy when we're talking about the influence of technology on the early days of popular music to think in terms of recording uh and amplification but you just can't underestimate how broadcasting fit into all this um and especially what steve said that a radio broadcast was for all intents and purposes a live performance um it was and it was treated as such um you know i i remember my grandmother sitting in front of the radio and we've all seen pictures of this yeah sitting in front of the the radio at at eight o'clock at night we sat down to do this <clears throat> in the same way somebody goes to a concert they were engaging with that radio as if it were their artist performing for them live wow um and 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 I suppose this made commercial sense for the artist because it gave him publicity. I'm sure they got a fee for that live performance in the radio station, but I think it's the publicity, right? Well, and, and let's also add into this sheet music sales um, because one of the big transitions that happens in the industry is the shift away from sheet music sales and profits into recorded profits, licensing profits. Um, in the 1890s, a songwriter would make a great deal of their money from um, selling copies of the sheet music. It was a primary source of income. Um, but by the time you hit oh, 30s, wow. 40s, people are buying less sheet music. They're buying, they start buying recordings. And so you see this, uh, this shift, if you will, in income. And then... This intrigues me. The performance uh, that that comes from this sheet music, you know, it's one thing to play it at home on a piano or whatever you have, violin. Could bands just get the sheet music and perform it themselves? Absolutely. And there's yes. no there's no like sort of copyright issues that we have now. You can't just right now you can't just bust out and start playing a Taylor Swift song. There have to be licenses and all sorts of things, right? Yeah. You can bust out and play. You just can't make a profit off it. Um, Good. So, yes. Yeah. 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 So yeah. No. 
the, the, the copyright stuff, there's actually copyright in place in the 19th century. It's just not very effective. Um, now, no, you could do this. And in fact, that's what the publishers were hoping was that everybody was running around doing that. Um, and he gave him more publicity and more music sheets were sold hence. And, you know, playing this out, that's why, for example, there was such a connection between Tin Pan Alley and Broadway. Mm-hmm. Because the Tin Pan Alley songwriters needed publicity for the audience to buy their songs. So everybody was looking to get that hit single in a Broadway show that would then expose it to the audience, build spin, and hopefully bring people in to purchase their songs, the sheet music. Uh, please repeat the, the 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 term that you use. Tin Pan Alley. Say that again, please. Tin Pan Alley. What is name? It's a literally it is a district in New York City. But it's a nickname for where the uh, music industry, pop music industry, basically all coalesced. Literally a, a street along which there were uh, songwriters and producers and performers and agents all working together. And it kind of became the home for American popular music uh, for a good 30, what, 30, 40 years, maybe? What, what t- it, it, it's something from stemming from 1880s, 1890s into the, and, and it remained. A term that had some currency well into the 20th century, uh, even though the actual neighborhood all was not just one place. It kept it kept moving, um, but it, it was generally re- re- used to reference the part of Manhattan where there was the greatest concentration of music publishing companies. Um, and you know, it just to add a little detail in the 1890s, there were million selling hit songs that sold a million copies of sheet music, right? So this was not Rick A Rick million? Or two million. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's major. It's major. This is the notion of a hit song comes from that mode of wow. selling music. Recordings didn't catch up to that again until decades later. So let's let's talk about catching up. What I want to know is when did concerts begin looking more and more like today's concerts. I know you gentlemen in the last segment said that the 19th century concerts kind of resembled today's concert, but you know they didn't have amplification. They didn't have all sorts of, I don't know, uh, um, all sorts of bells and whistles that our concerts do now. When did that start? I would say probably in the way that you're describing it, the 40s is really the time when you start to see something approximating what our current concert structure is. I mean, you certainly had some bigger concerts happening in in the 20s and 30s. For instance, in the mid-1920s, there was a huge jazz concert that happened in Chicago with Louis Armstrong and a bunch of other artists who performed. And... Mm -hmm. um, I think I think it was at something like Chicago Stadium, and I don't really know too much about the specific venue. I only know about this because I found an advertisement for it in a in a newspaper, uh, and it was but it was a huge advertisement. It made it seem like it was going to be this very big event, mm-hmm. um, and it was almost entirely black artists, mm-hmm. which is interesting. Wow, in a, yeah, um, there were touring companies who would play for you know, 3,000, 4,000 people, right? So 
how much of a jump is it from that to having artists who are routinely playing for 15,000, 20,000 people? It's, it's something of a jump, certainly, but there's already a certain sense of scale that's well in place pretty early as we've been talking about. But the whole notion of like with the trappings of the amplification and like a certain sense of loudness and the audience really getting like lively and into it, um, I would say that's really a product of the 1940s and 50s 1940s with some, and 50s. Some, some hints of it in the 30s during the swing era. Yeah, I, I would agree. And when I'm processing your question, I'm thinking as much about the audience as I am the artists on stage. Um, trying to envision what the modern concert, what we're calling this modern concert is and what they look like and how they're acting. I think back on pictures I've seen. Um, for example, as, as I was listening to Steve talk, I'm thinking of pictures of USO performances during World War II, where, uh, for example, the Glenn Miller band's playing and the, the shot is over the band's shoulder, looking out at this sea of, of GIs watching <laughs> the show. But they're all standing shoulder to shoulder facing the stage. They're not dancing. But then I go back five 10 years, there's a picture of Duke Ellington at the Cotton Club. The yeah. floor is crammed with people, but they're dancing. So, it's so, you know, we're talking the function of the concert, the function of the music, and how the audience is going to respond to that. When, when you're talking about these concerts, like a Taylor Swift concert, you're talking about a mass of people in an enclosed space um, whose their purpose for being there is to watch the concert, to engage the, the, the artist. Not necessarily to dance, not necessarily to eat and drink and whatnot. So I think we need to think about the purpose of the music as well. And I do think the 40s and 50s is when that pendulum swifts swings over. Interesting. Um, like movie theaters were actually really important for starting to present some of the kinds of concerts that we're talking about because the kind like people. I don't think the technology existed and it was also not something that occurred to people to use sports arenas as a common venue for this sort of event back yeah. that long ago. But movie theaters already kind of had an infrastructure. You had a sound system of some sort built in. You had a stage already there. It was not unusual for movie theaters in the 1920s to have live entertainment. Mm -hmm. So it was a short step from having a little entertainment before a movie to having the entertainment become more of the show. Dan um, played the organ in silent movies. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, um, Dr. Davis, I wanted to go back to something that you were saying about a shift in the 1940s and fifties in the minute we have left here uh, in this segment. Are you saying that sometime around that period, 1940s and sixties and fifties Americans start to become more spectators of a concert event versus fully engaged in, I don't know, is that what you, is that where you were going with that? Yeah. And I, I don't want to commit too much to any words because somebody will jump me for it later, but <laughs> yes, in a sense, that is what I'm saying. Um, that I think, well, I, honestly, I think the history of live jazz is in many respects, the best example of this. Um, there's a shift in the history of jazz from the audience participating with the performance, so to speak. Jazz was a dance music. You yeah, know, the yeah. jazz was dance music. Yeah. 
Um, but as jazz slowly evolved, eventually into bebop and those things, it evolves into what is tantamount to a concert music. The audience is supposed to sit and observe. We're supposed to, you know, admire the performing skills of the artist. No longer are we necessarily engaging with it. That's really interesting. Uh, we'll be back after a short break to talk about American music concerts and popular culture. Hey there, news peelers. We're working on a brand new website with many super duper features, including videos of our guests and compilations of our episodes into series with related blogs that are updated weekly, like series on U.S. politics, economy, health policies, environment, women's rights, and also series on many other countries, like Russia, Ukraine, China, and Brazil, and the British monarchy, and also a series on revolutions and protests, like those in Iran, Israel, and France. So be sure to check it out at historybehindnews.com. See you guys there. Dr. Davis, Dr. Waxman, um, I chuckled about this point during the break, and I'll just repeat it here. Before speaking with you gentlemen, I had this, I guess, vague notion of what popular music means. Uh, but then we talked about many different genres and how in the past they were popular. For example, as Dr. Davis said, uh, a civil war, a U.S. civil war soldier would listen to what I would think of popular music and then pop out and listen to opera. I mean, that just doesn't happen now. So let me just stop and just ask this question. What, what is popular music then? I'm going to actually dodge this a little bit <laughs> by giving a 19th century. Oh, come on. Century. This is a great question. I'm a historian. So I got to say, I'm going to give you the 19th century answer and that will set up for a modern answer. Beautiful. Let's start with the 19th century. Death. Um, part of the confusion, and it's a good question, by the way, but part of the confusion comes from the fact that we use the word popular music to refer to a genre, sometimes to a style. Um, I think what Steve and I are doing here is using it as a, as actually a very inclusive category of musical practice um, that has less to do with the style of the music more to do with the audience, intended audience, and functional. So is popular a numer numerical definition? Is that what you it mean? It can be. It can be, but it's not a defining characteristic. Um, so now let me jump back to the 19th century. My, my definition of, of popular music stems from, let's call it a battle during the 19th century um, over America's musical soul. Um, and this has been alluded to earlier in our discussion. Um, but there was definitely a movement in this country uh, to elevate musical standards. And it was this is an, uh, an outgrowth of the German Romantic movement that art represents uh, spirituality and morals, and that to elevate a culture in general, one needed to listen to and pursue high artistic uh, uh, products. So there's this this tension, if you will. And those, what it boiled down to, even in the press at the time, was between edification and entertainment. Um, edification, of course, is the noble goal that makes you a better person. Well, the offshoot of that is that somehow or another, entertainment is not a worthwhile pursuit. Yeah. And so the intelligentsia tended to, you know, start stressing this division, as we've talked about before. And music for entertainment's sake tended to be looked down on. Um, 
even though it, of course, made up the majority of musical practice and still does. Um, so my working definition, when I do my work, uh, is often grounded in that approach that it, it's popular music in the sense of it's music whose primary goal is not to edify. It's not aiming towards um, um, high spiritual or intellectual pursuits. It is grounded in some form of entertainment. Doesn't mean it can't be edifying. Doesn't mean it can't be spiritually satisfying, but that is not necessarily the purpose of the piece. And the fact that it tends to reach as broad, broad an audience as it can. But this sort of throws more confusion at the example you gave me of a Civil War soldier listening to common, I'm just using the word common, I don't want to use the word popular, common music, and then right afterwards could listen to opera. I mean, opera... Uh, opera was being promoted in the 19th century as though it was popular music in many cases. Like Maybe if that's Danny the answer. Lind, yeah. if, if Danny Lind sang a song and that song then was turned into sheet music. It was being sold as sheet music, just like some song that had a more kind of strictly popular kind of sense about it. They worked in sort yeah. of the same field. Um, and so, so that the specific content is changing all the time. I think what is consistent is the popular music, to some degree it's about the, the market, you know, the way in which it's linked to a certain idea of like a musical market and how to, how music is sold. But I think it's also, it's not necessarily a numerical thing. It's not the most people. That's part of it. But I think it's more about the mix of people. That popular music isn't limited to any one segment of the population. It's it's music that's expected to reach different sectors, even if it may only reach a few of those people in the different sectors. Um, a pushback on that, and it's just based on my own life experience, Dr. Waxman, is sure. that at least in the last 50 years, popular music seems to be driven by what young people like, right? The Beatles back then in the 50s, ironically, my 11-year-old daughter listens to Beatles along with my 63-year-old brother. <laughs> but, uh, but you see what I mean? It seems like popular music gets its roots now, its drive, its thrust from young people. Some of it. But if you look at the Billboard album charts over the last few months, for instance, like who are some of the top selling artists? Like country music artists have been dominating the Billboard album charts lately. Ah. Are they all selling to like 15 year olds? No, no, I'm no. sure that they are. I mean, yeah, some yeah. Of, someone like Morgan Wallen absolutely has youth appeal, but that's not his only appeal. And so I think even there is there's a certain idea of popular music that is very powerful that stems from the advent of rock and roll and that is tied to this notion that popular music is youth music but there's always been competing strains of popular music that are not limited in their appeal in that regard and that have been in terms of like market share every bit as popular if not more so Interesting. Look at Barbara Streisand. Look at Adele. Yeah, yeah. You know, these are not artists whose appeal is limited to a distinct segment of a very young audience. Great points regarding both. I, I listened to both. Uh, so and let me go back to something we talked about earlier to hook back in. Please. Uh, let's go back to venue. Um, where a concert, where a piece of music is performed is going to shade whether or not you call it popular music. 
Um, oh, whether it's in an opera house or is at the Staples Center. Exactly. Mm -hmm. it, it, go back to my favorite example of bands. Um, if you go to Carnegie Hall to hear the president's own band, you will treat it as a concert. But if there's a free Sunday afternoon gathering in the park and the band is there, you're going to treat it like a picnic. And you're going to see one is concert music and one is popular music. Oh, that's that, that's great. Yeah, that's a great explanation. Um, Dr. Waxman, uh, at the beginning of this segment, Dr. Davis set this up for you. He said, I'm <laughs> going to, <laughs> to give you the definition of popular music in the 19th century, and then I'll just pass the baton to Dr. Waxman. And, and to a great extent, we already spoke about it. Um, yeah, I think we have. Yeah, I'm just wondering, <laughs> is there a point at which we saw that, or, or we can pinpoint that, okay, now opera or classical music, music is no longer considered popular music anymore. Um, people are going, are, are listening to Beatles, to Elvis, the Doors and all of that. Well, I think getting back to something that uh, Dr. Davis just said, uh, part of it has to do with the kinds of spaces that the music is being presented in. And so um, the notion that for instance, an opera is something you see in a very specific, dedicated kind of opera hall. That, again, didn't exist in such a discrete way until a certain point in the mid to later 19th century and really the late 19th century. So if you look at like major U.S. cultural institutions, you know, the Metropolitan Opera House, I believe, was established initially in 1883, if I remember. Carnegie Hall is 1890. Um, like Boston Symphony Hall is 1900. That period of time was one where those halls are being built because there's increasingly this idea that if you are going to present that music in the way that most befits its seriousness of character, you have to have a distinct sort of space that is dedicated to Got it. Yeah. like immersive listening and concentration and focus. Yeah. You're not there just to be seen by your peers and you're not there to have a conversation People talked all the time in concerts in the earlier 19th century. <laughs> really? Totally. The whole notion that you sit quietly at a concert, that's like a very, again, a much more recent construction that we would ever assume. Um, and, and they did that while there was no amplification. So this must have peeved people that sat next to them. So then maybe somebody would throw some fruit at them. <laughs> because they would also throw some fruit at the, at the performers if they didn't like what they were hearing. Oh, it was boy. a totally different kind of environment. Yeah. Um, and so that notion that like there is some kind of music that's reserved for certain types of classes of people and where you are supposed to really be dedicated to the focused, attentive listening of that music. That is something that really doesn't take root in a dedicated way until around the 1890s and the first decades of the 20th century. And it's at that point that things like opera and classical music are more definitively not popular. But even then, I will add, because it's never that simple, when radio comes along and they start broadcasting opera across the country, it kind of gets popularized all over again. That's less of a factor now, I think, than it was. But like in the 1920s, 1930s, the lines got blurry again for a while. And and th there are times when they continue to get blurry. Think of the three tenors, right? Exactly. Yeah, the the they late nineteen nineties. Yeah, Andrea yeah. Bocelli, right? And, like, 
there are these occasional crossover artists, but that's more the that's more obviously the exception to the rule nowadays. Um, okay. I think I think by the early 20th century, the line is much more strictly drawn in the sand. And it, and it was drawn when those venues were built. I mean, let's remember that an opera house and a concert hall like Carnegie Hall were not just built to have good acoustics. They were built with very firm doors at the front. The cost of a ticket to get in was a means of separating that music from the general public. I mean, let's that's be a, frank. Yeah, that's a good it point. It was not intended for the general public to come wandering in. It was an elitist and elite art form. Let's take a break here. Stay with me and Dr. Davis and Dr. Waxman as we get into the perspective. The History Behind News podcast is available on all your favorite podcast platforms. Of course, we love your reviews and ratings of our podcast, especially on Apple and Spotify. And remember, don't keep us to yourself. Tell a friend about the History Behind News podcast. Dr. Davis, Dr. Waxman, are you or members of your family's Swifties? I am not. You're not? not. <laughs> How about don't, you, don't, don't get me wrong. I am. Uh, I greatly admire Taylor Swift. I think she's puts out a wonderful product, very impressed with her talents. And I think her success is well-deserved. I just don't think I'm entitled to wear the t-shirt. You're not my, entitled my, to wear it. I see. My nine-year-old niece, however, yes, is now a fully-fledged member. She is an official Swifty. I love it. So is my 11-year-old daughter. How about you, Dr. Waxman? Uh, I also have to admit that I am not a dedicated Taylor Swift fan. Uh, but but like Dr. Davis, I am not a dissenter either. Um, I think some of her music is is really quite uh, compelling, and I teach about her a good bit. Oh, I I have students who are absolutely into her, and uh, I really love the opportunity to get to understand a little bit more of her appeal by looking at her through their eyes. Um, and these are college students, obviously. These are college students, yes, absolutely. So we're talking about young people, women and nine non-binary students, because I'm at a historical women's college, um, okay. who, uh, yeah, mostly ranging in age from 18 to 22. Uh, she is a very regular point of reference and topic of conversation. Um, you know, I watch and hear about Taylor Swift, even on CNBC. Um, once in a while, you know, half, half jokingly, they come, they talk about the economic phenomena of Taylor Swift. Uh, and then they talk about ticket prices and what have you. And, you know, from there, um, have we had a similar phenomena like Taylor Swift in our history? Yes, I absolutely do not think that Taylor Swift is unprecedented. I mean, okay. the you know the money that she's generating is is exceptional, but it also needs to be understood in terms of what current dollar values are. Um, I think to 
it's it's difficult to really like split hairs over like is Taylor Swift bigger than Elvis or something like that or <laughs> is Taylor Swift bigger than Jenny Lind for that part, for that yeah, yeah. Thing, right um she is a manifestation of a figure that we see emerging repeatedly over the course of American popular music history which is just a star who becomes the star that other stars are compared to yeah. uh, and I think she to me, the more interesting question is like, what what has made her into that figure in our current moment when there are some other pretty compelling figures who could just as well be that and who are not too far removed? I mean, I think, you know, to me, it's a question as to whether Taylor Swift or Beyonce is more the defining star of our era. And while Swift makes more money, I, I might say Beyonce is the more impactful figure in certain ways. Yeah. Uh, but I and I think race has a lot to do with that, you know, in terms of like, why does Taylor Swift manage to get more money than Beyonce? Because the concert industry has been racially biased for its entire history. Oh, wow. OK. Uh, I'll that bomb down, right? As we're no, like no, no. That's that's <laughs> that's great. But you think race still plays a part not, I'm not talking about our times, but still plays a part when it comes to a major star like Beyonce. Absolutely. All is you have this, to do is, is pay attention to the kind of discourse that existed around her appearance at the Coachella Festival in 2018, where she was the first black woman to headline the festival. And she made that into a statement. And it was an amazing performance. You know, it's been documented in this great documentary called Homecoming. Um, and there was a lot of commentary that paid tribute to the achievement that she did, but that was only five years ago that it was such a big deal for a black woman to headline Coachella. This is, we're not talking about ancient history. Um, and Beyonce, one of the reasons I think she is so significant is because she is a black artist who makes race into a topic of conversation in the way that she conducts her career. You know, Taylor Swift does something analogous in that I think she uses her visibility to comment on issues that are very relatable, uh, especially to young female fans. She, and did that, she have a vote drive recently? Yeah. Yeah. She's also commented in really, I think, thoughtful and critical ways about certain dimensions of the music industry and how it's structured and, and her own efforts to get more control over her work and her the terms of her career, which is something that many artists struggle over. And I think it's something that a lot of ordinary people can relate to, even if they don't have the sort of privilege that she does. But like everybody can relate to the notion of like not necessarily getting what you feel like you deserve. Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, th this conversation has been all about concerts, right? So I'm wondering, in closing, do either of you gentlemen think that Miss Swift has changed the nature of concerts or from that perspective, not so much? I think she is showing... We're in this moment now where we had COVID and COVID shut down the concert industry entirely. Yeah. And it has been a slow recovery. So we're now in a recovery moment where I think Taylor Swift 
is one of a few artists who are showing that there is maybe pent up desire among a very broad range of people to just get back into this thing that makes ordinary life feel a little bit more special for a bit, which I think is one of the things that live music has always done. Yeah. Uh, I think a question that is going to always hover around not just Taylor Swift's career, although it hovers around any pop star's career, but really about the live music industry, if we're if that's what we're talking about, is is how sustainable is the particular energy that's existing right now in this moment. You know, last year things didn't look this rosy. Um, and peaks and valleys are, are a natural part of the economy in concert business, just as they are in capitalism. And that comment is not specific to Taylor Swift, that just generally the concert industry, right? That's what you were referring to. Absolutely. Yeah, right. Yeah. The concert industry always has dips and then it has surges. Uh, that's, that's normal business. Uh, so we're seeing a surge moment. Um, and I think it's going to be a big question for the concert industry as to whether this momentum can be maintained, not just for Taylor Swift, but for the industry as a whole. Um, and if so, I think a big question is who profits the most, <laughs> uh, because the concert industry is a very concentrated industry at its top. There are very few corporate interests that really yield the greatest profit, just as there are fairly few artists who are in the position to make the kind of profit that Taylor Swift makes. So part of my worry is that as someone like Swift and others who are in a comparable position um continue to push what they can do forward it might make it harder for some of the artists who are lower down the totem pole to get their share of the pie as well i think there's a growing divide in the concert business right now between haves and have-nots that taylor swift to me represents um what's that expression don't all boats sort of um, rise with the rising tides? Shouldn't that be her impact that she sort of brings uh, attention to the whole concert industry? I think if you consider like that, somebody might have to pay 500 or a thousand dollars or more to go to see a concert and they can only see so many concerts in a year. Yeah. That's I'm not sure happening. That, that logic applies. Yeah. Yeah. I get what you're saying. Um, Dr. Davis, do you have any, any closing comments about uh, Taylor Swift and her impact on uh, concert industry and culture? Well, yeah. I mean, first of all, I would definitely agree with everything Dr. Waxman said. Um, and my, I guess my response is a little more personal uh, and less, less um, objective. Um, I actually have been amazed at the Taylor Swift mania for this current tour, um, just how much hype it's getting. Um, <laughs> yeah. it, to me, it really is. Well, let me explain. Um, if you'd have talked to me about this very topic 15 years ago, I probably would have told you that uh, Taylor Swift couldn't exist. Um, oh. I was one of those, and again, being very, you know, honest and personal here, but I was one of those who was watching the digital revolution um, and streaming and bootlegs on YouTube and all these things. And it wasn't so much that listeners had access to so much more uh, music. 
it's that I saw the listener pool diluting that the average listener right now has so many options. I mean, there are actually so much music out there if one knows where to find it. And so I had kind of come to believe that, you know, the Beatles or a Lady Gaga, you know, show that was a thing of the past that an artist could never obtain that type of superstardom again. And then along comes Beyonce and now Taylor Swift. And, you know, I'm eating crow on this one, but I'll be (laughs) honest, I'm happy because it instills my hope and faith that listeners still value that live concert, that it, it remains a part of, a necessity of their musical experience, even when they have so many digital options. And that, that enheartens me. That gives me hope for the future. Yeah. Yeah. I understand that. Um, Dr. Davis and Dr. Waxman, thank you so much for educating me and our listeners and to our listeners. If you know of any history that could provide more perspective from the past on this subject, please share it with us and tell us what's your perspective. Thank you so very much, gentlemen. Thank you. Thanks. The opinions and statements of our guests are their own. We neither agree nor disagree with them. We're only interested in the perspective they provide through history. At History Behind News, we're honored that our guests share their expertise with us, most of which are based on years of scholarship and research and we provide links to their projects and publications for your benefit to review them if you wish. Otherwise, we're not affiliated with our guests. We just think they teach us pretty cool history, the history behind our news. Also, unless we explicitly inform you, we're not affiliated with any institutions, including Amazon, for which book links are shared here from time to time for your convenience. Finally, as a reminder, we don't do news here at History Behind News. We peel the news for the history behind it. And our mission is not to provide a complete account and analysis of the past. Rather, is to highlight some issues and incidents in our history that may poke and prod your discerning minds into seeking some perspective for our news. And if you disagree with our take on history, well then, it means we've succeeded in getting you to think about the history behind news. And of course, share your thoughts with me by leaving your comments on Twitter or sending an email to Adele at historybehindnews.com. I love to hear from you. I love to learn from you. Until next time, this is Adele with History Behind News, a history podcast for our news.